welcome back to eConversations with Nabe, the official podcast for the National Association for Business Economics and your one-stop shop for catching up on the latest in business economics on the go. On this episode, Elaine Buckberg, Policy Fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research, sits down with Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia President and CEO Patrick Harker to discuss all things monetary policy. Elaine, take it away. Good morning, good afternoon, and and to anyone joining from farther away, good evening. I am thrilled to welcome Philadelphia Fed President Patrick Harker to this part of our annual Monetary Policy and Outlook series, and I hope some of you were able to join Richmond Fed President um, Tom Barkin and Ellen Zentner yesterday. Patrick Harker serves as the President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, In this role, he participates on the Federal Open Market Committee, or FOMC, formulating monetary policy, and he's currently a voting member. Before taking office at the Philadelphia Fed, he was moved to Delaware, and before that, Dean of the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. He's published nine books and more than 100 professional articles. The true polymath, President Harker has a PhD in civil and urban engineering, a master's in economics, and both master's and bachelor's degrees in civil engineering, all from the University of Pennsylvania. So President Harker, let me turn it over to you for your opening remarks, and then we'll have a conversation and take questions. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Elaine. Um, And good afternoon, good morning, good evening, everyone as well. Good day, I'll just say. It is a real pleasure to join you in this series on monetary policy and our economic outlook. And I thank Nate uh, for inviting me and for Dr. Elaine Buckberg for moderating. So you did hear, as you heard, from my colleague, Richmond Fed President and CEO Tom Barkin on Tuesday. So I'm honored to provide this, well, it's called a Fed bookend uh, to this webinar. So I look forward to having a useful and engaging dialogue. But please allow me to open with my thoughts on the direction in which we're heading. And I must lead, as you know, with the standard Fed disclaimer. The views I express today are my own and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else on the Federal Open Market Committee or in the Federal Reserve System. So where are we? While headline PCE inflation has come down from its peak of 7% last year, it is still running at over 4% year over year, way above the Fed's long run target of 2% annually. Now this inflation is underway, but it is doing so at a disappointingly slow pace. The persistently high inflation comes with real costs for American families, cutting into purchasing power and household wealth, and the pain isn't being felt equally. The toll is falling most heavily on those least able to bear it. And I'm especially concerned about the elevated costs of housing, food, and healthcare, life's true necessities. So to combat this inflation, the Fed has been working to slow the economy modestly and bring demand more in line with supply. We have increased the target range for the federal funds rate, our primary monetary policy tool, by 500 basis points since March of 2022. Ongoing balance sheet reduction is also tightening financial conditions. We're already seeing promising signs that these actions are working. For example, house house prices, those indices are cooling. And it is encouraging that even as we've raised rates, the national economy remains relatively healthy overall. Since January, we've experienced modest growth in economic activity. 
There are also still a record number of Americans employed with more than 1 million jobs created on net so far this year. Now, while there are some signs that the labor market tightness is beginning to ease a bit, the unemployment rate remains near record lows, 3.4% in April. We're also paying close attention to the banking system. The recent failures of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and First Republic ignited an understandable wave of anxiety among banks, depositors, and investors. But I can assure you that the U.S. banking system remains sound and resilient. Now, we know that problems in a few banks, if left unattended, can undermine confidence in, a, in the healthy banks. That's why the Treasury, the FDIC, and the Fed acted quickly to protect the U.S. economy and its banking interest. The Federal Reserve also led a thorough, transparent, and swift review of the events surrounding Silicon Valley Bank so we could learn what went wrong. So, of course, I know the question on everyone's mind. Okay, Pat, that's fine. But where are we going from here? The Fed's monetary policy actions are clearly, and as you know, guided by our dual mandate to promote full employment and price stability. On the job front, things look quite good. We are effectively at full employment. But when it comes to inflation, there's still significant room for improvement. It will take some time to evaluate how recent events may impact overall economic activity and inflation. So I expect to see tighter credit conditions for households and businesses that may slow economic activity and hiring. But really, the full extent of that is still unclear. But what is clear is that the Fed remains fully committed to return inflation to its 2% target. To do this, the policy stance needs to be restrictive enough. But what is enough is not written in stone somewhere. Instead, I'm closely monitoring incoming data, listening to our contracts and audiences, and evaluating economic conditions to assess whether additional tightening will be needed. I do believe that we are close to the point where we can hold rates in place and let monetary policy do its work to bring inflation back to the target in a timely manner. Along this path, I project that we will see modest growth this year with real GDP coming in a bit below 1%. Now I expect inflation to decline somewhat around 3.5% this year before falling to 2.5% in 2024 and leveling out at around our 2% target in 2025. Unemployment is also likely to tick up slightly, hitting around 4.4% this year. But this is just a snapshot of what conditions look like today. We are operating in a very uncertain environment, and I will be closely monitoring our dashboards of economic indicators and assessing their implications. Now, as I've said before, survey data are an important tool in the economic business. At the Fed, we look at everything from big, broad numbers like GDP and employment growth to more granular figures like restaurant reservations and mobility data. These data, hard data, tell us a lot, but even hard data can have their limits. The numbers can point in a certain direction, yet there may be a lot going on underneath those numbers, which is not easily visible, but is just as vital to drawing a complete picture. Take, for example, the employment picture. Throughout the past year, each interest rate hike was predictably followed by voices warning that we we're about to tank the labor market and spike unemployment. That hasn't happened but we monitor these trends to see how workers will be impacted if it does. So given the tight labor market, there's obviously something deeper happening. We continually hear from some employers that certain tools aren't working as they once did. 
simply offering higher wages still isn't attracting the workers some need. And some efforts to increase productivity of current workers is instead leading to increased turnover. These cases are especially true at the lower end of the wage scale. And this may be why some have grasped that no one wants to work anymore. I hear that a lot. But I think we would all agree that there's more going on under the surface. Well, look, as you heard, I'm not strictly an economist, I'm an engineer. And that background is what is forcing me to look at this issue in a different way. And that's what we're doing at the Philadelphia Fed. That's exactly what the Fed is doing. And I'd like to spend just a few minutes before we get to Q&A on this topic. So over the past year, our community development and regional outreach team, along with colleagues at the Atlanta Fed and elsewhere, engaged with low wage and non-degree holding workers nationwide in a series of focus group conversations. We've been listening to them and to their reasons why they may have exited the labor market at the onset of the pandemic, to re-enter from an entirely different door on the other side of it, or are quitting jobs at such a high rate. We're calling this effort the Worker Voices Project. And we released our first report, Shifting Perspectives and Expectations on Employment, one week ago. Yes, workers want to be paid what they believe they are worth and bring to the table. But it's not only about wages. And yes, they want to be somewhere where they can be productive and contributing employees, but not if they don't believe their contributions are appreciated, let alone rewarded. What we increasingly heard is that workers want something that we as economists and civil engineers don't yet have a metric for, being treated with dignity. Dignity was the key word. As one participant told me recently, Work is not the end-all be-all. We're in the words of another, we're looking for a place where we belong. Now the factors going into decisions of where to work or whether to go into an entirely different direction are increasingly complex. And these complexities may make us rethink what we thought we knew about labor markets. So really, I encourage everyone to take a look at our initial Worker Voices Project report. For us as policymakers, soft data are perhaps equally important to get a full understanding of our economic situation. And the soft data we're getting through worker voices is what will help us chart a course for a strong and growing, but a more inclusive American economy. So look, I know that's a lot to start with, but I also know that it, it's what's going on and what's going to lead us to a great conversation. So Elaine, to that end, let's get right to the conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you for those opening remarks, and you've you've really spanned a lot of ground in that. But yeah. I think we can we can take up more. And I already have questions coming in. Uh, you know, almost every time you mention something, someone brought it. So you talked a little bit about what your central outlook is like, but forecasting yeah. has been uh, very humbling and difficult in the past yeah. few years, which means that we really need to put a lot of attention on what are scenarios outside of that central case. So can you talk with us a little bit about what are your upside and downside outlooks for inflation or scenarios for inflation? So I don't see at this point it's spiking, right? I think it, we're on a downward path. It's just a question of how quickly it, it decreases. It has been very stubborn, um, really frustratingly stubborn. Uh, and we know the, the lead culprits there. It is not goods inflation anymore. 
It services inflation and its particular core, or now we're calling super core uh, service inflation. Because we know also where housing's gone. You know, I, I think we have a pretty good sense that housing's gonna at least decrease for a while in terms of the inflation metrics and then tail off. In some cases, continue to go down, depends on your market. So we know where that's going. There are other areas though, that in terms of uh, hospitality, leisure, travel, et cetera, that people are still spending money on, um, and that who have the money to spend on those things. But again, that will start to um, start to come down, we think, as people just spend through a lot of that, those, that money. Um, now, the countervailing force to that is the employment picture still remains good. People still can get jobs. Although the most recent data that came out today, or in the last couple of days, show that with the revision of wages, they're not as high as we thought they were across the economy, right? So we're starting to see a cooling, at least in the past few quarters of, uh, of wages. So we're starting to see what we would predict, right? So theory isn't completely wrong. Economic theory isn't completely wrong that these things uh, should happen and are starting to happen. But the downside risk is that it just stays up there longer than we anticipate. The down downside risk or upside risk to inflation, I should put it that way, is that we see yet another black swan hit the economy, something we just didn't predict, right? I mean, there are some likely suspects. It, it looks like we're starting to build a different kind of relationship with China. So that is going, that's not as much of a risk in my mind as it once was even a few months ago. But we never know what Vladimir Putin's going to do next, if he creates an even more tragedy and, and just in a horrific situation in Ukraine. So we don't know, but absent that, we continue to see, as I said, inflation just marching down to 2% over several years, but it is going to take time. So you you went into the inflation question and that recent transactions or not so recent transactions because the lags are so long between housing transactions and the measurement yeah. of housing inflation suggests that housing inflation would come down and indeed perhaps even go negative if you look at like case Shiller yeah. 12 month year right. over year. Now, um, if goods inflation remains muted and housing inflation comes down, but there were still substantial pace in that super your overall though headline PCE, core PCs coming down, CPI, which reflects what consumers actually experience as, right. as Chair Powell keeps saying is coming down. Is that good enough? Is it still yes. about the overall? What I look at is get underneath the hood, right? Let's look beyond the headline numbers. And in particular, look at the things, as I mentioned, that low wage workers, low-income workers you know care about the most they're the ones who have take they're going to take the brunt of unemployment and they're taking the brunt of the high inflation it's food shelter transportation health care these are the life's basic necessities and if i can't afford those for myself for my family uh, this is a, a horrible place to be so i think we need if i can see that those things are coming down in a significant way or at least continuing to march down I feel better about, even if the headline numbers going down more slowly, I feel better about that because people can 
get the get life's necessities. So I think we have to be careful that we don't just pick one number and base policy on a single a single number. The dual mandate of maximum unemployment and price stability really speaks to conditions for households. Sure. But you're, you know, for the first time in a long time with, with substantial inflation, the Fed's really having to look at the trade-off for, versus when inflation was negligible for years. Right. It wasn't that much trade-off. So right. you've you've pointed to some of the issues here, right? And research finds that unemployment has lasting costs on the unemployed and their families, yep. right? From healthcare costs to not rega regaining their income trajectory. But as you said, inflation hits everyone, but it hits those least able to bear it the hardest. Right. So how do you think about when, uh, you know, moving more, moving aggressively on inflation or, or too aggressively on inflation could induce a recession? How do you weigh those relative costs? So I'll tell you where I am right now, how I've been weighing this. It is a trade-off, right? And But I think we're at the point or very close to the point now where we are clearly in restrictive territory and we can sit there for a while. We don't have to keep moving rates up and then have to reverse course quickly. You know, we're in a period of all this uncertainty, and we have a lot of uncertainty in us. We've got uh, the uncertainty just about knowing, you know, the dynamics of inflation. We've got uncertainty about whether it's going to be a credit squeeze, a credit crunch with respect to the banking sector. Uh, we have lots of other uncertainty hitting us. We, we in the short run, we, we have resolved, it seems, if the Senate votes positively, resolve the debt ceiling crisis. But there's still some uncertainty as Treasury then starts to reissue debt, what that does to reserve levels, and hence what that might do to, again, the credit. Um, credit conditions in the country. So there's all this uncertainty. So my view right now, very clearly, is I think we should not pause, because pause says we're going to hold for a while, and we might. I think we should at least skip this meeting in terms of a, an increase so we can let some of these things resolve themselves, at least to the extent they can, before we consider at all another increase. And I, I just think that's prudent policy um, at this point. Because, you know, and I think back to where the Fed used to be, you know, we wouldn't always be raising rates every other meeting or cutting rates every other meeting. We did the did that in exigent circumstances. But we're now reaching a point where we are starting to see things move. And again, I, I even take recent reports today of some retailers who, you know, you would think, particularly retailers like dollar stores and so forth, that are now seeing different dynamics in their stores that you have to take with some seriousness that people are not spending like they used to in a dollar store. And so you think that all, you start to add all these things together in my mind. And it says to me, let's, let's skip this one, see how it goes. Now, uh, now, there's a big caveat. If in fact, the employment report tomorrow and other data we're getting about inflation is very different than what I'm predicting, I change my mind. So this is not set in stone. My mind is not completely made up on this. But my preference right now is barring any d change in the data that was outside my forecast. I would skip this meeting right now. Okay, so you've just, given, you've just given us a loud and clear message that I'm just going to underscore. You said we're in restrictive territory um, and that and that we can skip this deep meeting as we sit today and before you see those, 
jobs data that's it, on that's Friday. That's my own view, right? Right. This is that's my your opinion. personal view. And of course, right. the CPI data comes in on the 13th. So like as right. you all are sitting down at right. your meeting. So I'm sure that'll right. make for a, an active discussion. So but I also think, by the, way, by the way, we shouldn't be reacting, you know, meeting by meeting, measurement by measurement. That's not good policy either. And so I think we need to look through a lot of that. And again, there are these other forces that are happening that are with the revision on uh, the wages and so forth that get me to think that it's time to just at least hit the stop button for one meeting and see how it goes. Terrific. And markets have consistently seen the Fed sort of going from raising rates to almost immediately cutting them. Yeah. And perhaps that aligns with the widespread view that a recession is going to happen this quarter and just keeps get pushing out. And by the way, that's not my view. But no. how would you think about what would be the conditions that would enable the Fed? Let's assume you you get to a point where you pause and you go a few meetings without, or I don't know, I don't want to put a timeline. You get to the point where you're no longer raising rates. What would be the conditions that would be a starting to take down rates and what might be the pace of doing so? Well, I think if first on the employment side, if we saw significant deterioration in the labor markets, which I am not forecasting right now. I mean, I think it, when we say 4.4% unemployment, yeah, that's an increase of, you know, 100 basis points, but that's basically back to where our long run rate is, right? So it's not as though that is out of the ballpark of normal. That's normal. Um, so I, I think if we saw but significant deterioration in the labor markets, an acceleration of that, I would worry. Uh, on the flip side, if we suddenly saw inflation coming down pretty significantly, that would be a good thing, right? And labor markets remain strong, we could start to, to ease off uh, in terms of policy. But again, that's not my forecast either. I think we're going to have to be up at this restrictive level for a while, at least through this year, before I think we're going to be cutting rates, but we'll see. We'll see how this goes. Okay, terrific. And what is your growth outlook for this year? And are you in the uh, um, substantial uh, substantial chance of a soft landing camp? Or do you see recession ahead? Um, so and I weak. think given... Yeah, it's weak, under 1%, but I'm not in the recession camp right now. But if we have one, it's going to be mild. I can't imagine the conditions are such that we'd have a deep recession at this point, barring some, again, black swan that hits us. And some would say that given the lags in monetary policy, that maybe the odds for this year have gone down of a recession for this year, but maybe we pushed it into next year. Do you think we can have a path to a full soft landing, not just through the end of 2023? And how wide or narrow is that path? Well, I think we do have a path to, to that. And I think it's reasonably wide, but that depends also on our policy stance. This is why, again, I'm advocating not continuing to increase, 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 but sit for a while. Okay. I love your optimism and partly because it matches my own views, <laughs> but also because I feel like um, there's just so much doom and gloom out there. So NAME does an uh, economic outlook survey, which we fielded in early May. And in early May, 62% of respondents said that the banking turmoil was, quote, contained but ongoing. And by the way, that was the way the question was written. It was multiple choice. So what do you think? That's what we're hearing from our contacts. So it's not necessarily what I think. It's what I'm hearing from my contacts is early on, everybody reacted the way you would imagine people react. 
they started to pull in the reins, right? And just think about where everything's going. What we're hearing from our banking contacts right now is they're taking care of their existing customers and they're starting now to take on some new customers as well. So, you know, that's where I think there's going to be some credit tightening, but I'm not seeing it as a credit crunch, you know, significant pullback on credit at this point. But it's going to have a, it will have an economic impact. I don't think it's going to be large, but it will be reducing some uh, financial conditions uh, you know, in the next several months. Great. And you touched on the Workers' Voices Project, which I know yeah. is one that you care about greatly. And um, for our audience, you know, this involved focus groups with nearly 200 workers without bachelor's degrees to learn more about their labor market experience. So tell us what you think this means about the job market, um, its tightness and, and other conditions for workers. Yeah, so there was a disconnect, I think we have between employers and workers that needs to be closed. And this is what we found out with the Worker Voices Project. It's very consistent with, if you talk to management scholars, you know, human resource scholars, you know, they'll tell you like one of the main reasons people leave a job is their manager, their direct manager, right? In that, that if they're not treated with dignity, uh, they leave. I, I was talking, actually, we, I met with a group of these workers uh, after the report was finished, but before we finally published it, to just hear, bounce off of them what the findings were. And all of them resonated with them. And, what, and I heard a couple of stories. You know, one story of a woman who was here in Philly, uh, she has two children, single mom, and she wouldn't know her schedule, you know, except a day or two in advance. She said, how can I raise my kids I need more respect about what my life is like, you know, and, and other people, I heard a similar story of a, a young man who, you know, had to leave the military because he had some health issues. He went to work for a place and the health issues got worse. In this particular case, it was uh, uh, seizures. But his boss kept saying, you need to keep driving the, the truck and keep doing this. And he said, but I have seizures. You don't understand. And it was this complete lack of understanding. And it amazes me in some ways in a tight labor market that the managers don't understand that these are the things that matter, not just a few extra bucks, but these are the things that matter to people. They're leading very complex lives where work is a part of that, but it's not all of it. They're taking care of their parents. They're taking care of children. They're doing other things. They're having to drive two hours to work and back and given the price of gasoline, you know, that's this sense of dignity. That's the word that resonated with me is one that I think we just really need to, to think about, uh, you know, as a society, it's way outside of monetary policy. Don't get me wrong. Right. But it, it is. But and by the way, this isn't going away once we, you know, you think about where we were before the pandemic. We had tight labor markets then. we had low on inflation then. we had structural issues in the economy. We, the boomers are retiring. We're not coming back, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's just all accelerated through the pandemic. These structural problems still need to be addressed if we're going to have the workforce we need for this country. And so I'm going to ask you one more question before turning to the audience questions, which have been rolling in. So when you talk about lower income workers, that's where real-time payment perhaps is most critical. Like when does your payroll hit your account and how fast can you then turn it around to your landlord yeah. to make rent? Um, and that probably also speaks about timing of payroll. Um, right. One of crypto's attractions is instantaneous payments without a fee. 
do you see with this crypto winner that you've talked about, do you see a path to instant and zero fee payments and dollars without cryptocurrencies or do we That's need the next generation of that? That's a good question. So first, one of the th other things I learned from the workers is they want to be called workers in low wage occupations, not low wage workers. And I am trying to remember that. It's something I'm trying to yes. internalize myself because they're saying I have career aspirations. I want to do more than what I'm doing now. Right. And so I'm not, don't define me as a low wage person. I'm just happy to be in a low wage job. Now that really stuck with me and I, I'm trying to preach that and I'm trying to live it yeah. myself. So don't, don't get me wrong. Cause I'm so used to calling it the, the other, you know, in terms of uh, real-time payments, of course, we have fed now coming on, uh, this summer, uh, it'll start our real-time growth settlement system. So we will start to create some uh, real-time rails. The crypto issue is interesting. You know, we at the Philly Fed have the Consumer Finance Institute, which is really everything consumer. Uh, we do research on a whole host of things, including higher ed, very active research program in higher ed and student lending, et cetera. Uh, you want to know something about autos? You come, you know, we are the auto expert because we actually run the stress test, the C-car models um, on the consumer portfolios out of, here out of Philly. Okay. So we have a deep bench that we built. And uh, we, during the pandemic, we conducted surveys of consumers just to see where they were. So not just annual or semi-annual, but we wanted to do it on a more regular basis. And we, it was interesting. We did two waves. Well, we've done many, but there are two waves in particular of the survey. One that hit just before the crypto winter and one that hit just after the crypto winter. And what was striking about that, there were two things that struck me in these surveys. One, the demand didn't fall off that much. It was surprising. I was expecting it just to fall off a cliff, right? Didn't happen. Second though, is who's the main user of this, at least in these retail surveys? Remember, these are retail consumers, right? Were people non-whites, BIPOC, populations, which, you know, I'm starting to put into my head thinking about this. Uh, you combine that with what we learned out of the pandemic of small minority-owned small businesses being shut out of PPP loans because they didn't have an existing banking relationship. What this is starting to paint is a picture that's troubling to me, very troubling to me, that there are communities out there, our neighbors, our, our American citizens, who don't trust institutions. And so they'd rather use something else than use existing institutions. And that's a concern to me. Um, and so, you know, and we see this, and there's other generations of this, check cashing operations and so forth that have appeared throughout history of people who don't trust the bank. And there's good reason they don't trust the bank, right? There's a history there. So we need to address that. There's a deeper fundamental issue I think we need to address um, to try to get people in. There's good things that happen when people get into the banking system. Um, but we, the, but the banking system, all of us need to do our part to, to bring them into the system. Those are wonderful points. So I'm gonna start turning to audience questions. Sure. And the first one I wanna ask you is, will or to what extent will banks uh, pulling back in the extent of credit they're extending, do the work for the Fed in terms of raising rates? And how do you see that trade-off? So it'll have an impact. Uh, we just don't know. The, the numbers, I've seen a lot of estimates on what that means in terms of Fed fund equivalents. Hard to know. I mean, this is one that's just hard to know. 
I, my own sense, it's just own intuition. Let me be clear. It's not any numbers I've run. Is it'll have an effect, but it's going to be modest. I mean, probably, I don't know, you can pick a number out of the hat, 25 basis point, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe, but it's a big maybe. Uh, you know, we don't know for sure, but it will have some effect. There's no question. All right. So thank you. So we have a question about money supply and money supply growth rates. And I think those yeah. Like that was sort of a, an off-the-table <laughs> metric. But, of course, we had a surge in M2 right. uh, during the pandemic. Um, we've had the, the subsequent inflation, you could say, fit right. the old-school analysis. So how do you and Fed policymakers uh, consider monetary aggregates in yeah. your decision-making? Yeah, that is a really good question, too. So. It's not just the Fed. Let's sort of broaden it out to the economics profession broadly. I mean, with you know, neo-Keynesianism and our, our new approach to monetary policy, they really have fallen out of favor, those, uh, tracking those monetary aggregates. My own sense, personally, is we should pay attention to them, for sure. Um, it's not going to drive our decision. No one thing should drive our decision. But yeah, we, I mean, what we're seeing now, the good news is we're starting to see that all reverse, what you described, right? We're starting to see those numbers come down pretty substantially. So, um, but, you know, I, I don't, this is the, I'm going to speak as the engineer, right? So, I mean, there's, there's laws of nature, and then there's laws of economics. <laughs> They're always not the same, right? right. I, I can go test the law of gravity right now, right? I'm dropping something on my foot. Uh, it's harder to test those laws of economics. So economics is harder in the terms of a science. So I think given that uncertainty about what we really know, and there's been a lot of debate about this within the profession, I think we need to take all these things into account, not necessarily weigh them equally. Everybody will weigh them differently. But I don't want to ignore monetary aggregates, uh, but I don't think it should be the only thing we look at either. Great, thank you. So we, we have a lot of questions that pick up on your discussion of worker conditions. One question about not how managers treat workers, but about cons how consumers treat service workers. And oh, sort man. Of, you know, bad <laughs> behavior by consumers yeah. and how that is showing up in the workers' voices project and um, what tool what policies are there policy tools or, or how how can this phenomenon be addressed additions for service workers yeah that you know it, we didn't ask that question i don't believe directly but i'd have to go back and look at the report i'm sure it came up because you know frontline workers generally whether it's uh, workers in low wage occupations or nurses right they've all fled they were beaten up so badly during the pandemic i mean in in some cases their lives being threatened. You know, people whose lives never have been threatened. My sister's a librarian. She was a county librarian. She's retired now. There are librarians now being threatened across this country. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I've never met the radical librarian in my life because I think of my sister. Right? But I mean, the, the fact that people who are doing a job for the community, right, serving the community in the library, are being threatened. So they're quitting. 
you know, you're starting to see people just walk away from these jobs, whether again, nurses, librarians, uh, first responders, uh, per people working as baristas, they're just tired of being, you can understand it. It's, it's, it's human nature to be, to understand that, man, this is, this is a, I, my life is being threatened in doing this job for relatively low wages. Why? So I think some of it, 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 I don't think there's a policy issue. I think it's managers having to step in and back their, their employees. The customer isn't always right. I mean, I think we have to recognize that. Sometimes a belligerent customer, particularly a customer who's threatening someone, really threatening someone, uh, is, is a danger and, and has to go. I mean, I know some companies throughout, you know, I used to do a lot of research in this when I was back at Wharton, you know, in service companies. I used to run a center on the study of service industries. And so we had a pretty good sense of uh, this, who was successful and not successful in this space. The companies that were successful and generated tremendous employee loyalty were the ones where managers were trained to step in at some point and say, I'm sorry, you as a customer, they use other language, but you're fired. You can't be here anymore. That's what it yeah. takes. And I think you also pointed to that there are there are two kinds of workers in low paying jobs. There are those who are in the classic frontline service job, you know, the barista. And then there are those who are highly skilled jobs that they think are, are meaningful, but our society doesn't compensate highly, like nurses yeah. and librarians and teachers. Teachers, nurses, childcare workers, uh, you know, workers in adult facilities, you know, adult care facilities. We can go down the list of people who felt underappreciated. And yeah, it was nice that people were clapping for them and so forth. But at the same time, they want better working conditions and they want to be protected. And you get that. And that's interesting because it, it is my perception. Um, I don't know to what extent this is from the classic macro data, but that wages have come up the most at the yes. at, for those jobs. Yeah. In this time, because that is where the labor market tightness has been. And that that goes to a, another audience question, um, which is, can the Fed help? It is an interesting question, but I'm, I'm going to throw it out there. Can the Fed help raise wages and improve job security, especially with the sort of gig economy? I think yeah. I mean, the one thing that I you have to recognize, I remind myself of every day when I walk into this building, is the Fed has very limited tools and a very clear and precise mandate. Uh, that's not what the Fed can do. That's not what monetary policy can do. That's not what an interest rate can do. That's really in the hands, and you can even say, well, that's in the hands of Congress or your state legislature or your local you know, borough hall. But at the end of the day, it's up to all of us. Right. And how we treat people and, you know, and how we call people out when we see them misbehaving and just treating somebody not inhumanely. Right. And what do these tough working conditions imply? Do they mean we'll see lower labor force participation? Do you have views on what that means about the willingness of, of the group? older workers being willing to keep working past 62 or 65 or 67? Um, All the above. I, I think what we've seen is a lot of boomers, my generation, we've accelerated our retirement, right? And the generation coming behind us, and this is the demographics that's playing out in this country, is um, 
not taking up the slack in terms of we're the largest generation to go into retirement in history. So it's going to take some time. There's also another area that I dare to venture into, but I'm going to triple down on my disclaimer. And I triple down on the view that the Fed has nothing to do with this, but it's just a basic economic fact. I mean, we need more people, right? That's the part of the answer is we need more people. We either get people off the sidelines, and that's why we're talking about the Worker Voices Project and the work we do here in the Philly Fed on opportunity occupations, really understanding these jobs where you don't need a college degree that pay above median wages, that can give you a life family sustaining wage. So we've done a lot of work there. But there also needs to be a sensible immigration policy uh, to bring the people we need in the country in. That is not in my wheelhouse. I'm be very clear on that. But I think we just have to recognize that there are only two solutions to get more people into the labor force, more people off the sidelines or more people in the country. That's it. There's really nothing else. Take a while, if you can even lift them. <laughs> yeah. uh, so another question is about the impact of friendshoring on inflation. Now, friendshoring yeah. is a gradual process in terms of moving supply oh, chains yeah. out of, you know, either out of China or just out of longer distances, either to what I'd call nearshoring, so North America, or to um, yeah. countries that we have stronger alliances with. Well, I, I think about it this way. I mean, if I used to be in the department at Wharton, we did supply chain stuff. That was our, right. one of our calls to, you know, calls to fame, I guess. And uh, so, you know, the supply chains were optimized for a certain set of risk profiles, right? Companies individually, the private sector optimized supply chain after supply chain that was best for them, given their perceived risk uh, in that supply chain. Well, I think what's happened is the risk profiles have changed. Um, and so companies are re-optimizing their supply chains. That's natural. I mean, it's, it happens all the time. It's just accelerated this pace right now, particularly uh, as you call, say, with China. But this phenomenon is not new. I, I mean, it's been happening throughout history, right? Uh, so how's that going to play out? Well, I think some of it depends on, for example, there's now it looks like we're going to start talking with the Chinese again. We're just going to start uh, trying to cool the, uh, the the rhetoric around that. So we'll see how that plays out. But company by company has to make a decision of how they're going to assess those risks and re-engineer their supply chain. Yeah, there's going to be some French showing. I mean, Mexico, Vietnam, et cetera. But again, these risks move around the world <laughs> all the time. So yeah, we'll see how this plays out. But uh, I don't think the idea that it's all going to reshore, I don't, I'm not in that camp. There'll be some reshoring, but I just don't see that a lot of that happening for certain components of the supply chain. There are other components of the supply chain, take semiconductors, where I think we have assessed the risks there in terms of national security, and we're taking action in response to that. But semiconductors are the exception, not the rule, when it comes to all the goods and services we consume in American society. So as the economist and the engineer, we're going through this major economic 
transition with the energy transition, or Caitlin called it the energy revolution, which might be my new right. phrase for it. And lots of new. How do you see that impacting the economy, whether inflation or productivity? So in inflation, I think it's going to take time, right? This any kind of, you think about an industry as large as energy. This is not a ship you can turn overnight. It's going to take decades, right? And we know that. I mean, it's just practically to build the capacity, to build the technology, to bring the technology up on the S-curve to deliver what we need uh, is going to take some time. But it is going to happen. It, it's, I think, inevitable, including things like nuclear energy. I mean, Bill Gates just launched his test platform of his new uh, salt bed reactor, salt reactor, I mean, uh, in, I think it was Wisconsin, Wyoming, Wyoming, I think. Um, so these new technologies are going to start coming online, but again, they're going to take some time. Uh, so how that impacts inflation, we're not out of fossil fuels yet. We're not, I, and we're going to continue to have to use them as part of this transition plan. I mean, again, just to abruptly stop and start, isn't going to work. I mean, the American, we just, there's not enough capacity right now to meet that need. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I'm actually bullish on the energy future of the country because I think our creativity and uh, around these technologies is excellent. I mean, and we're, we're finding new things all the time on new battery technology, on new solar technology, on new nuclear technology, et cetera. But we just, need to unleash the creativity of our engineers and scientists around the country to really address this. And I think that we're in the process of doing that. So first of all, I think this is a lovely optimistic note to close on. Uh, and I also really want to thank you for the, your not just your time and to talk to the NAEB audience, but your frankness and um, direct You've taken on a wide range of questions. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Caitlin to say a few closing words, and we'll give people the chance to have a couple minute break before their Great. next uh, appointment. Great to be with you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of eConversations with Neeb. We hope you'll join us for the 20th annual Neeb Foundation Economic Measurement Seminar, July 17th and 18th at the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, D.C. The Economic Measurement Seminar provides a unique opportunity to learn about federal agency data directly from the producers of the data. Pairing the data producer with a data user, the seminar provides a comprehensive picture of the importance and different uses of economic measurement today. If you've previously attended, we encourage you to come back for Track B sessions, spend some time exploring measurement on hot topics such as consumer sentiment, the energy revolution, housing affordability, manufacturing, wages, consumer spending, and the debt crisis. Early bird deadline is June 14th. Please visit nave.com slash EMS 2023 for more information and to register.